Shalom Aleichem on behalf of Teach 613, we welcome you to Take 10 for Talmud. We are recording in Silver Spring, Maryland, and are so glad that you can join us. Gitin Mem Dalit, Gitin 44a, pagination is 87, counting up from the bottom about 12 lines, in the beginning of a line, Omar Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi. We're dealing with another, uh, with a number of cases regarding a slave in the time when second base amikdash when slavery existed in local cultures and we got on the topic because in gitten there was a comparison of changing the status of a person whether it's the status of a woman upon a divorce she becomes unmarried or the status of a slave upon giving him or her a document that frees them, causes that transaction to occur. So we got on this topic of slaves. And although it doesn't exist today, and one would think none of this is relevant, but there are specific laws that can be extrapolated, as we will see, which prove useful to us in different applications. Now, the concept of a non-Jewish slave to a Jew in the time, for example, of the second Beis HaMikdash is very unique. It's not what people think uh, just a slave is a slave and they would be abused, perhaps. The concept of slavery is very interesting in that the slave would be converted to Judaism on a certain level, but they were not totally Jewish. So that, for example, they would keep Shabbos, they would keep kosher, they would celebrate the holidays together with the family. But, for example, a man-slave would not put on tefillin. Different status of observance, and the person was, to a degree, part of the family. One is not allowed to sell this slave to a non-Jew because, as we can well imagine, a non-Jewish master is not going to be accepting of the slave saying on Shabbos, I'm not allowed to do work, which is not just an issue because he's owned by a Jew. His status has already changed so that he is to a certain degree Jewish. He is personally obligated to keep Shabbos. And if we were to sell him to a non-Jewish master, that would not be something that he can observe. Therefore, we're told, If a person did sell his slave to a non-Jew, we place, we levy a tax against the Jewish former master, Adasora Bidomov, up to ten times the value of the slave, he has to make an effort to try to redeem the slave and set him free 
because in his current status in a non-Jewish home, he will not be able to keep mitzvahs, and you've put him in an unfair and precarious situation, you have to try to rectify it. Three lines from the bottom, Bo'aminei Rabbi Yirmiya. Rabbi Yirmiya asked the following question, and this is the reason that I chose this piece. Mochar avdo umes mahu. If a person did sell his slave, and then he died, what is the halacha sheyiknesu espeno acharov? Do we levy this tax against the child who inherits the estate or not? In other words, if the father was still alive, being that he's the former master of this slave, and he sold the slave to a non-Jewish master, we would levy the tax against him, and he would have to pay up to ten times the value of the slave to try to redeem him and set him free so that he could become a full-fledged Jew and be welcomed to the Jewish community and be able to do mitzvahs. Now that that former master has died, do we levy this same tax against the son and say, you inherit the estate and you inherit this liability, this tax, and you're going to have to try to redeem the slave up to ten times the slave's value. The Gemara considers this from a number of different cases where someone did something and then died, and we want to see if the tax is levied against the child as well or not. For example, on Ahmed Bey's on the top line, Kiven melachto bemoed umes. If a person purposely delayed certain work for the holiday, such that his plan was that it will be desperate to be done, and he'll be able to, in this way, work on Chalomoed on the intermediate days. Umes, and now he died, and the son inherits a situation with the assets that's desperate. It either needs watering, or it needs fixing, or whatever it is, has to be done on Cholamoed. Otherwise, they're going to take a significant loss. Had this happened normally, we would allow him to do the work on Cholamoed. But because it was planned for Cholamoed, there's a knas. We levy a legislation against the person who planned it for the holiday, and we tell him that he's not allowed to do that work. For example, in Simon Tuf Kuf Lamed Ches Hilchas Cholamoed, the Mechaber writes, HaMechaven Melachto, a person who intended, he planned his work, V'hini Cholamoed, waiting for the holiday, and he did it during Cholamoed, thinking he outwitted the system, because desperate things you're allowed to do on the intermediate days. Bezdin ma'abdin osamimenu. Bezdin would ruin it from him. Mafkirin osalakol. They would declare it hefker, and anybody can come and take from that which he benefited and created this situation regarding. However, 
Umais, if that first person who planned it that way died, we do not levy this tax against the son. As the Mishnah explains, Bezdin matirim livno Bezdin will allow the child to do that work, since the fact is, it's an item of significant loss, and if he doesn't do it, he would lose, and that's the case that you're allowed to do that type of work on Chalamoid. So we don't levy this tax against the son, and this is one of the examples that's cited to try to prove how we would handle this case where a master sold his slave to a non-Jew. The Gemara continues with this discussion, and about nine lines down at the beginning of a line, Naktinon, the Gemara says, we have a halacha, Hetiva, if a person fertilized his field using utensils, uh, a mass production during Shavias, during the Shemitah year, which is prohibited to be done, Umais, and then he died, his son is allowed to get the benefit from the fertilized field, he is allowed to plant the field. Alma, what do you see? When the rabbis made a knas, a legislation against someone's wrongdoing, they made it against him, they did not make the legislation against his son. And indeed, as far as Hilchas Avodim goes, in Yeridea Reish Samach Zayin, Se'if Pei, the Mechaber writes, Ein konsin hayoresh lahachzir ho'evid. We do not place this same type of legislation up to ten times the value of the slave. We do not place that against the son against the person that inherits. Teisvis, both on the bottom of Memdalid Ahmed Aleph and on the top of Memdalid Ahmed Bez, points out that it's hard to bring proofs from one thing to the other because sometimes one case is very serious. It's Chamur. For example, the Eved is partially Jewish, he has certain Jewish obligations, and your mafkia lemi mitzvis, for an endless period of time, you're taking him out of mitzvis. That sounds pretty serious. And it could be that they would legislate even against the sun. They would take that more seriously than perhaps chalamoid things and shavias things. But at the very least it would seem that it's enough that you can't prove a legislation against the son necessarily, and therefore you can't obligate him to pay that kind of money to redeem the slave. Teisvis observes that there are two cases where it will affect the son. One of them is Ashtar Sheyeshbo Ribis, a document that has interest between Jews, 
shekonsim oso, that you're not going to be able to collect with that document, that's even the son. But the reason is because, in this case, the son is looking to collect the money, and he's not able to collect the money. But for us to intrusively go into the son's possession and tell him what he can or can't do, and obligate him to take a loss, that's a different type of status, and we wouldn't take that away from him. Again, the document, the document is being defined as worthless because it had the ribbis in it. Another example is Shnayim Shef Kidu Eitzel Echad Zemona Vizemosayim. There's a case where two people gave over money to somebody. One gave her 100, one gave her 200, and the person entrusted with the funds can't remember who is who, and we're trying to get them to admit. So there is an opinion, he should just hold on to the 100 and the 200, because if he just returns 100 to each, which is the logic, each of them is certainly entitled to 100, you're not going to get anybody to admit. In that case, we hold back the hundred and the two hundred, even from the son, even after the person dies. The reason is because you're not going to be forcing the liar to admit if he knows that after his death, it'll go be Yerusha to his son. It's again, Mahifsid Haramai. But going back to our Gemara, the general approach that's being proven by our Gemara is that we do not place such taxes and levied legislations against the son, even if the father did wrong. Yeshikoach, thank you for joining.